I remember when Tanja was uh, trying to remain in office beyond the two terms. You would not expect Director of Political Affairs of ECOWAS to go on BBC mm. and say to the people of Niger that their president was occupying that office illegally. Did he, did he really? <laughs> he did that, you know. Mm. We were in, I recall that we... Did you know in advance that this was going to happen? No, nobody knew. <laughs> And uh, you had someone like Tanja, the president, calling yeah. Abuja and of asking, course. who was this guy? Who is this guy? Yeah. You know? But he was brave, courageous. And I think we needed that at that point. Tunde has worked pretty much his whole adult life on conflict prevention and transformation in West Africa. This runs the full range of political crises, military coups, contested elections, democratic reversals, the rise of Islamist extremist movements, breakdowns of governance for regions like Nigeria's Middle Belt. What's unusual is that he can speak from multiple and complementary perspectives on this issue space. His first major gig was at the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. This is classic track one intergovernmental diplomacy. His current work is with the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, one of the best established and best regarded private diplomacy organizations, which has a completely different way of working on the same issues in the same geographic spaces. So we do get into the nuts and bolts of that in some detail, and it's fascinating insight into work that really isn't much discussed. But the through line here for me is really an ethical one. Getting inspiration from some of the pioneering figures in conflict prevention in West Africa. Working as a Nigerian to realize the potential of an African-led institution and moving on when the time wasn't right to do that. Staying humble and staying curious, but also staying extremely ambitious in a way about what can really be done on the most pressing challenges of the day. It was a real pleasure chatting with Tunde. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Firstly, thank you for doing this and hosting me at your flat, no less, on a Saturday, no less, <laughs> in order to fit me in. Yeah, thanks. thanks I, I do usually start these at the beginning, which is, uh, where is your accent from? Where did you, where did you grow up? <laughs> my accent is... Are these two different, <laughs> two different answers? <laughs> my accent is distinctly Nigerian, I'm sure. I, I was born in uh, Ibadan, or your state in Nigeria, southwest mm -hmm. Nigeria, in the very late 70s. And I grew up there, went to primary school, secondary school, University days, first degree, second degree um, at the University of Ibadan, and then, of course, much later to do a PhD in uh, in a very cold part of Scotland, St Andrews, precisely. But I I grew up in Ibadan, and then uh, much later on went to moved to Abuja to work. Worked in Lagos for a bit for an NGO in Lagos called uh, the Center for Democracy and Development (CDD). And mm -hmm. then after a bit of that, I went to join ECOWAS in January 2007. 
and I was with ECOWAS for for almost five years. But I left. I resigned from ECOWAS to to go do um, a research degree, a PhD in St Andrews. Why ECOWAS? When you you studied political science, right, and then peace and conflict studies, well, then CDD, and then into ECOWAS. That's a pretty clear trajectory. Tra- exactly. Yes. What, what was behind that? Well, uh, I've been a bit lucky as well, I would say. It's, look, it looks like a smooth trajectory, but it's not exactly as <laughs> it never is. smooth. Exactly. It's yeah. never as smooth as uh, it looks on paper or as you hear it. I remember that, you know, my initial post-secondary school years, I was actually a science student all through my secondary school, senior secondary school years. And the idea then was to do a course in the sciences, mm-hmm. engineering or medicine. You know, mm-hmm. It was fashionable, it was trendy to do courses like that. And I never for once imagined I would do political science, which is interesting, you know, mm-hmm. completely out of it, completely out of it. At the worst, in quote now, I thought perhaps I would do economics, you know, which... Mm-hmm. Quite good quasi-science, though. Exactly, which had some elements of science to it, you know, uh, maths and all that. So political science was actually partly accidental, I would say, partly as a result of not being able to make the cutoff points for economics, which is the honest truth here and... But I'm glad it happened that way. You know, yeah. life happens, but life happens for good sometimes as well. And I remember that I had a choice either to do uh, political science or to wait another year to try mm-hmm. add economics. But I decided to try political science. And I, I recall the very first class, the very first lecture that I attended. And it was boom. It was, you know, a light bulb moment for me. It felt like home immediately, you know, within the space of an, of a lecture of one hour at Tibado. And I just fell in love with it right there. And then, and I said, yes, this is where I should be. By the second year, I'd kicked on, you know, and I had become uh, very engrossed in it. It was hard to separate me from my, um, from my books from year two up until year four. Therefore, it became easy to do a master's degree immediately after my first degree. Mm-hmm. In between, there was the service year. And then right after the um, service year, I did my master's degree in peace and conflict studies. And it was easy for me because I had found uh, purpose, I think. And uh, I must also tell you that contributing to that clarity was uh, the role of a number of people who had gone ahead of me, mentors. You know, mentors have a way of uh, making it easy for you. Mm-hmm. It's easy to sort of model yourself after people that have been there, done virtually the same thing or something close to it, and then, you know, influenced you and encouraged you, provided the space, the encouragement to do like them, to, to, to sort of mold yourself after them. And uh, a few names come to mind. Number one is... Um, an intellectual, an academic who became a politician. Um, he's actually one of the um, seven governors, you know, in Nigeria right now, um, Dr. Kyle Defiemi. He actually has a PhD in war studies from King's College. He had a background in international relations as well. So I met him 
I think in my final year as an undergrad. And he was who I wanted to be like, you know. Uh, not the politics aspect of it. No. Not going to be governor. <laughs> At least not. No, 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 no. <laughs> he wasn't a governor then, but he just was the person I, you know, wanted no. to be like. He was this very brilliant scholar who also was an activist, also was genuinely interested in uh, peace and security matters. So it was easy to gravitate towards him. And I'm grateful that he also made himself available despite his very tight schedule travels around the world. Um, so he became my mentor and he just put me on the right path. Also his wife, interestingly, his wife, she's a social activist in, in her own rights. She's a f- one of the foremost feminists in, in Africa, actually. She also was very instrumental, you know, into the choices that I made. In fact, at the time I moved in with them and left my parents because it was just natural, you know, it was just this natural chemistry and they had this massive library. I would say one of the biggest libraries I've seen on the continent. And so when I was doing my postgraduate studies, it was easy to live with them and utilize the library. I've actually lived in that library for mm. all through my... Sounds delightful. Uh, <laughs> it was fun for yeah. me at that point. It was fun. And, and then the very first face of my working career after working with CDD. I also met another person, Dr. Abdel Fatal Musa Ghanian, mm-hmm. uh, who was my first boss at ECOWAS. And he also had a profound impact, effect on my career. Helped me to develop as well. Intellectually, was a sounding board, was a critic, was a boss that I was very close to. I still remain close to him. He was at that point the director of political affairs at ECOWAS. Mm. And I worked as a political affairs officer. So I think it's important to, you know, highlight that fact that Mm. mentoring helped, made it easy, Mm. you know, to make some of those choices. I was wondering if the particular point in time at which you were doing this was also significant, because we're talking... For my master's mid-2000s, Prior to that, I must say that I grew up, became politically conscious in the 80s. Grew up in Ibadan, in Nigeria, used to the military being in charge. I mean, that was the era of uh, military regimes. The particular one that stood, that was in office for a long time, was uh, Ibrahim Babangida who was in office as military president, self-styled military president from 1985 to 1993. And those were the years, you know, that I became quite aware. I began to read newspapers at an early age. My father would buy newspapers and I would read them as young as I was then. And I remember the struggle, the June 12 struggle then, you know. There was that election that was widely believed to have been free and fair, perhaps the freest and fairest in the history of Nigeria. Mm. And a certain candidate... Um, in 93, no? Yes, won. MK Wabiola won, and then the military refused to go, and it became a problem. And there was a struggle after Babangida had to leave by force. Mm. Uh, Abiola was arrested. Uh, lots of people were thrown into jail. My father, actually, uh, having been 
an advertising practitioner for a long time. I mean, I knew him to be an advertising practitioner. Suddenly became an activist. <laughs> the, two, so, the two are not, not that dissimilar in a way. Well, and, and then he became a politician eventually. He's a politician <laughs> now. Natural synergy there. I, I, I think so. I think there's a trajectory there for a lot of people in Nigeria that I know. So I grew up in that environment, you know, of being conscious. But I, all I saw was the military mm. as governors, as the head of state. And uh, it was actually trendy for a number of young people then to aspire to join the military because for them, it would continue like that forever. And therefore, it was a means to becoming a governor or head of state. Thankfully, that's... You didn't take that path. <laughs> no, I didn't. I couldn't have. I, I never actually was attracted to the military. It never was anything that... Because you would see the rank and file kicking people on the streets, beating people up, seizing people's properties, staging coups, etc. Of course, uh, when I did military studies, I realized that it was actually very important, very professional career path for some people, but I just it just wasn't my thing. Was that problematized in the context of studying political science or peace and conflict studies? Was that gaze directed internally to Nigeria at all, or was it more sort of conceptual and outward looking? Interestingly, not at all Nigeria. <laughs> I found myself reading about Nigeria from early you know, from my early years and yeah. having a good understanding of, you know, the politics and the sociopolitical environment. So it was not an attraction for me, honestly. Mm. I never wanted to study Nigeria. And that was why even for my master's degree and my PhD, I never studied Nigeria for my dissertation or uh, as an area of focus. And that's Liberia, no? I did Liberia. Yeah. Any, any reason for that? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. I did Liberia because also, again, in 1989, you had uh, the invasion of Liberia from Cote d'Ivoire by Charles Taylor and his NPFL rebels. At that point, if you remember 1989, that was when the Berlin Wall fell. That was when, obviously, the Cold War ended. And then Liberia was, of, uh, was no longer of significant... Uh, importance to the U.S., you know, prior to that, of course, all through the Cold War years, Liberia was its most important ally on the continent. Mm. So it was fascinating to me to study perhaps the deadliest uh, post-Cold War, civil war, violent conflicts on the continent for a long time. Also, if you get to meet people from Liberia, Liberian people, I find them fascinating. They're just amazing people. In what way? One, for me, the first, you know, thing I noticed in my interaction was the accent. It is, it's a very distinctive accent. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the accent, you know, initially, and then the way their perception of life, their view, their worldview is a bit different, you know, a bit unconventional, very happy people, despite all that they've been through. Mm. Of course, I got to interact with librarians much later after the Cold War, after the Civil War had erupted. So it wasn't that I met them in their happiest moments. Yeah. But still, you know, despite that, they were warm, they were full of life, optimistic people. 
and they had this way, they still do, by the way, librarians have a way of laughing at themselves, you know, which is amusing to me. They are not too, you know, serious in that sense of, you know, not uh, of taking things too seriously, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that fascinating and uh, then delving into the history of Liberia, how Liberia evolved, um, the long history of uh, minority rule, and then, you know, unfolding into the 80s when you had uh, majority rule, which became a disaster, and eventually started the civil war. I found it fascinating. I find I still find Liberia fascinating. I still follow Liberia from afar. And uh, for me, I never wanted to work on Nigeria. Going back to ECOWAS now, of course, working with ECOWAS meant that, as a political affairs officer, meant that I had to look at the entire subregion all the countries in the sub-region. And I tried at every point in time to avoid Nigeria. Of course, there were times when I had to look into uh, the happenings in the Niger Delta and uh, perhaps in the northern part of Nigeria. But I just altogether tried to avoid working on Nigeria. And there was also this rule then in political affairs that you shouldn't ideally work on your country, the country where you're from. So I found that escape uh, helpful, but I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed working on other countries. I was involved in a number of high profile uh, mediation interventions. I did a lot of work on uh, conflict prevention, structural conflict prevention. I was part of a team that drafted and tried to implement uh, the ECOWAS conflict prevention framework, which was a normative framework that sought to move ECOWAS from reacting to actually structurally uh, preventing conflict. And uh, being a part of a team, small team, that <clears throat> crafted the ECOWAS conflict prevention framework, I felt lucky. I still feel lucky. Just walk me through what that looked like in, in a case like um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, for example, was you know, probably the, the biggest potential crisis, actual crisis at that time. So in terms of your role within ECOWAS, I mean, where do you go? What happens? Who do you meet? Um, what is the, the arc of engagement of the institution? Right. All right. So ECOWAS itself, the Economic Community of West African States, was founded in 1975 to foster economic integration mm-hmm. amongst uh, West African countries. That was the main mandate for ECOWAS. But of course, because uh, it became clear at a point that you couldn't achieve those economic integration goals or have a common customs union or achieve cultural integration without peace and stability. So, of course, that made ECOWAS to uh, deviate, to, to go into peace and security in the 90s, also because there was no one else to help it at that point. Uh, so it became maybe more known for peace and security matters than actually the core uh, raison d'etre for mm-hmm. which it was founded. And I think that remains the case. Uh, for me, I served as a political affairs officer um, through my years there. Uh, and that entailed undertaking political analysis, coming up with peace building, peacemaking programs across the subcontinent. 
That also entailed working on uh, elections, preparing for elections, helping a country, a member state of ECOWAS to prepare for elections, ascertaining whether it's ready for elections, predetermining what the potential conflicts that may erupt uh, prior to, during or after the elections and then coming up with solutions. Also mediation support. I wasn't a mediator, of course. I just supported mediation interventions uh, by helping to prefer strategies, by helping to do conflict analysis, mm-hmm. uh, scenario building, by also helping certain mediation organs to build or enhance their capacities. In that kind of situation, I assume you would have an eminent person appointed as mediator and Typically. then a support team, yes. including yourself. Ideally, yes. Ideally, there would be a big man or a big woman, as we say in uh, in Africa. Were there um, any big women? Big, big women, yes. And during during your tenure there, yes, there were a few women on the Council of the Wise. We didn't have a lot of them, but I can say that they more than made up for <laughs> the numbers because they were very vocal. They were more passionate than the men, I dare say. Mm. And they were quite advanced in years. I remember one professor, Sarah Diop, she's late now, a renowned poet academic from Mali. Mm. She was more vocal than any other person on that council. Mm. More passionate, more committed. And even as at then, I remember she was in her late 70s. She was very vibrant. There was also Theresa Lee Sherman, uh, a Liberian activist. Uh, there was also a woman from Sierra Leone, uh, Elizabeth uh, Alpha Lavalli. So you had the Council of the Wise as eminent personalities. You had uh, former heads of state, mm-hmm. uh, someone like uh, General Abdusalam Rubaka from Nigeria, with all sorts of ambassadors, uh, respected statesmen. You would have to work with them. It was also a time when ECOWAS was its, uh, I think, was at its best, quite vibrant mm-hmm. in helping to resolve certain types of conflicts that had evolved in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. This was also an era where you had lots of democratic reversals. Mm-hmm. Um, almost at that point, almost all the countries of ECOWAS, almost all the member states were democratic. In almost all the heads of state were elected democratically, but you had a number of coup d'etats mm-hmm. in Guinea. Um, for example, there was one in Guinea-Bissau. You had the dynasty in, uh, in Togo. Mm-hmm. Also one or two cases of heads of states, presidents, elect, elected presidents who did not want to leave office after their tenures had expired. Uh, case in points, Mamadou Tanja of Niger then. So it was an interesting time, you know, to be in ECOWAS to try and ensure that those countries, you know, consolidated on their democracies. The outlier cases where you still had military regimes were ushered out with ECOWAS's help. Mm. So it was partly activist work with diplomacy, you know. This was what we did. It was a time when also Mohamed Imin Chambas, who is now the... UN Special Representative for West Africa and the Sahel was president of ECOWAS. 
It was also when my former boss, Fatal Musa, was director of political affairs. He had an activist background. Mm. And I think that made a difference in terms of the, in the way that we responded to, to those conflicts. It was unique. The way we responded was unique. Uh, out of the books, quite often not very diplomatic. I'm going to have to ask you to elaborate. <laughs> what that, on, on that, what, what did that look like? I remember when Tanja was uh, trying to remain in office beyond the two terms. Uh, you would not expect Director of Political Affairs of ECOWAS to go on BBC mm. and say to the people of Niger that their president was occupying that office illegally. Did it, did it really? <laughs> he did that, you know. Hmm. We were in, I recall that we... Did you know in advance that this was going to happen? No, nobody knew. <laughs> and uh, you had someone like Tanja, the president, calling yeah. Abuja and of asking, course. who was this guy? Who is this guy? Yeah. You know? But he was brave, courageous. And I think we needed that at that point. So he, he I think we were able to pull it off also because of the leadership uh, Chambers' leadership, because not many mm. heads of institutions would tolerate that. Uh, it was a good thing, of course, but it was not conventional. Yeah. Um, to be able to confront a sitting head of state, I haven't heard of it before. It's pretty it, unique in my It is unique, but it, but it worked, because it also alerted the others who were planning to do the same that ECOWAS would respond. Mm. And ECOWAS did respond in other places. Uh, Guinea, when you had uh, Captain Dadis Kamara, soon after he took over as uh, head of state in, in a coup d'etat, he was suspended. Yep. Guinea was suspended. That didn't happen before then. That didn't happen. So I think those unconventional diplomatic efforts tinged with activism helped mm. and made West Africa a better place, ultimately. Although I must say, that I have observed that in recent times, those problems are returning. Mm. Um, we're hearing cases of uh, heads of states wanting to remain in office beyond their terms of office, beyond the constitutionally permitted uh, uh, tenure of office. Well, including Guinea again. <laughs> Guinea again, yeah. exactly. Um, Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. And these were countries, these were heads of state that were actually beneficiaries of our efforts then. Yep. And they were grateful. I remember. If no, you, they're both huge, huge international support and exactly. regional international support in both cases. Exactly. But now we've gone back. You know, we've regressed a little bit, and that that is not a very good thing for for people like us who have left the course and our observers from afar. Is it a lack of support within the region at head of state, head of government level that's driving that? Like, why why is the momentum? fallen out of that project a little bit, do you think? I think there was at a point a deliberate effort by powerful elements in the sub-region to whittle down ECOWAS's influence. Mm. At a point, ECOWAS had become too powerful for them. We got to a point where an ECOWAS president would tell a sitting head of state that he had committed certain atrocities and that ECOWAS would not tolerate it and that ECOWAS would use its influence to reach out to the African Union 
and the United Nations Security Council to stimulate international reaction. They didn't like that. Some of them didn't like that. And uh, I think they began to think this entity that we have given, ceded some supranationality to, is it becoming too big for its uh, breaches, as they say? Should we rein it in? And I think they did that. Um, I recall that the moment when they made a former prime minister of Burkina Faso, who served under former president Bless Compare of Burkina Faso, they made this prime minister, former prime minister of his ECOWAS president. I knew there was trouble. It was clear to me. I mm. don't know why some people did not see it. It was clear to me that ECOWAS would suffer because Bless Compare is not one of the greats. He's not the most forgiving exactly. character exactly. by, by all accounts. If you're, if you're listing charismatic leaders from the continent, yeah. say over the past, say since independence, Bless Compare would not be on your list of top 50 being conservative. Of course, you remember Thomas Sankara, and you know what happened, you know, to Sankara. Yeah. But that I wouldn't want to go there. So, a nominee of uh, Les Compare was president of Ecowas. Um, you had after him an economist from Benin Republic of blessed memory. Now um, he he knew nothing, little or nothing, about peace and security. Mm. He didn't know the history of you know, peace and security for West Africa. He didn't have that history. Mm. His was largely to work on economic integration, which is very difficult to achieve in an atmosphere of you know, chaos. Suspicion. <laughs> exactly. So I think he got his priorities you know, wrong and uh, therefore didn't focus, didn't pay much attention to to peace and security, and that made ECOWAS to suffer again. And also, a number of people, you, you see, no matter how good institutions are, no matter how solid they appear, it is individuals that make institutions tick. It is, it, it is individuals that make an organization to carry out its mandate and succeed. I think with that evolution, with the downturn of events, uh, politically for ECOWAS, the lack of bite, the reluctance to engage like he used to, certain people also left. Mm. You know, certain people felt it was time to move on to do other things mm. and to try to make West Africa better through other means. Does that include you? <laughs> not really, no. Um, I mean, not necessarily as as the main mover and shaker, of course, but you you did go, you did depart to I did. start a doctorate, which is, is is unusual for a it's not unheard of, but it's it's somewhat unusual. Unusual for a practitioner, yes. Yeah, I had I had been in Ecowas for about five years, and uh, things were getting a bit monotonous, and I always had a dream to do my PhD, so. I think it was just perfect timing to have left in, in autumn of 20, 2011. I resigned and then went to do the PhD in St. Andrews. But it was also influenced by my interests. 
my desire to have a better grasp of certain aspects of the work that I had done with mm-hmm. ECOWAS. I wanted to have a deeper understanding of um, the effects or the impact of non-state actors' engagement in peace processes. Because I realized that for most of the time that I was there with ECOWAS, we, we hardly resorted to the people. We hardly engaged the most affected by conflict in efforts to resolve those conflicts. And that is still the case, you know, to a large extent, especially for track one high level mm-hmm. uh, mediation interventions. And that was what I pursued in my, in my um, three and a half years in St. Andrews. Again, I went to Liberia. <laughs> um, I did, I did my PhD on Liberia focusing on the, um, diaspora as well as the religious groups who actually played uh, critical roles in ending the the civil war, the 13-year civil war in Liberia. And for me, I wasn't satisfied with a basic explanation or a simple, simplistic explanation of why they got involved or how, you know, that evolved. I was interested in unearthing the real reasons um, why the diaspora, why religious actors engage the process. I started by seeking to understand the, the historic role of uh, religion, the impact that religion had on Liberia, right from the time that the state was founded. Did that make you or encourage you to reinterpret the ECOWAS work you were doing in a different way? I mean, being so enmeshed in that, and then you look back at the way that work was done in Cote d'Ivoire or Guinea or wherever else, not to say it was done badly, but you must have looked at it a bit differently from that point. I certainly, it certainly did because I, it was, it was partly an experiment to self-criticize, mm-hmm. you know, to do some introspection into interventions that ECOWAS undertook. And I played, you know, a little role there in some of the conflict uh, resolution efforts. So it made me to look at things a bit differently. It was quite self-critical. I had a few debates with um, some of my colleagues, even while doing the PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, And it certainly influenced my my orientation, my thought process, my worldview. And interestingly, right after I finished the PhD, I went back to Echo in a different role, in a more senior position, obviously, and uh, hoping that I would change the world. <laughs> Haven't armed myself with uh, a PhD that looked into how non-state actors could influence, uh, positively impact on peace processes. Yeah. So I went back, you know, trying to change the world in 2015, late 2015. And... Uh, you didn't change the world. I, I didn't change the world. <laughs> That's what I'm here. <laughs> I did not change the world. Unfortunately, mm. I couldn't change the world. I think I must have had this uh, romantic notion that, you know, coming back, having been there before, you know, as an insider and then returning armed with more knowledge, mm. with a more rounded view of uh, how it's done elsewhere. But uh, it didn't quite happen the way I thought it would happen, you know. I 
spent, I was able to survive for a year, <laughs> exactly one year, and then I resigned again. Was I'm glad that I went back because if I hadn't gone back, honestly, I would be thinking now that perhaps I could have tried to change certain things. But mm-hmm. I did go in there to try, you know, partly to revive some of those things that we had done in the past. Um, by then, some of my colleagues, um, my former boss had left. So it was like the mantle, you know, was on me to try mm-hmm. and do those things that we used to do, you know, but leadership matters. You know, mm-hmm. the leadership had changed and the orientation was different and I came back to a much less activist environment, maybe more suited to traditional diplomacy than I would have liked. And uh, it was partly frustrating, to be honest. What was what was going on at that time in the region? <laughs> was there something that you thought should be happening or needed to be addressed and wasn't being addressed? Or the- Absolutely, absolutely. Even uh, the way we addressed issues. Yeah. So, for example, one of the key organs that we worked with to resolve, prevent, resolve armed conflicts or political crisis in the sub-region, uh, the Council of the Wives, mm-hmm. had been moribund. So, right after I left 2011, up until now, uh, 2020 as we speak, there hasn't been a single meeting of the Council of the Wise. In fact, the Council of the Wise has not been reconstituted. And that was one key organ. And that's one example. Mm-hmm. Another example, the usually vocal, progressive stance of ECOWAS, which I was used to, if there was a political crisis happening somewhere during my first stint at ECOWAS, if there was even a terrorist attack taking place somewhere, we would draft a communique, respond to it, strategize on how to resolve if we needed to partner with uh, the member states or the African Union, we would do so. You know, it was quite proactive, you know, very swift in responding to these things. But it had changed. It was, uh, it had changed. It was, it was, I, at times I felt like a few, of my colleagues thought I was too hasty. And, uh, you know, you would also think about it to be sure that it's not you being the problem. Because I was used to a certain type of response. Quick, not very conventional, but of course by the books. Nothing illegal, nothing controversial per se. But it had changed. And so I... I managed to stay for one year, and then I left. Mm. I left on good terms, but I I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. I thought we could do more, but no regrets, because if I hadn't gone back there, uh, despite the other offers that I had to to do work elsewhere, I would have regretted. But I'm glad that I tried, and uh, it didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to work out. So that was how my second marriage with Equus ended. <laughs> uh, not very happily uh, afterwards, but I tried. Why do you say you would have regretted not going? What is it about the the institution or the idea behind the institution that is important to you? The history. Yeah. The good work, the remarkable work that Equus had, that Equus had done for West Africa 
for the people of West Africa, the strength of ECOWAS, if it's maximized at full capacity, the ability to influence across the continent. I was with ECOWAS when even the African Union deferred to ECOWAS on anything West Africa. I'm not sure if this is the case right now. It was a time to be there, you know. The experience of having been engaged in conflict resolution, peacekeeping, peacebuilding efforts in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea-Bissau, Cote d'Ivoire, Togo, Guinea, Niger. That's, that's rich for a sub-regional organization of its, uh, of its size. It's rich. And, uh, I felt that, I still feel that if ECOWAS is able to maximize its potential, it can help to address some of those problems that are currently besetting the sub-region. Today, the key problems are largely democratic reversals, um, human rights abuse. Heads of states do not exactly, some heads of state, not all, do not exactly respect court rulings anymore. Now you have the issue of violent extremism on the rise. You also have issues of cross-border criminality, maritime insecurity, etc. So it's actually getting worse, but I don't see the response that mm. that I expect. So you switched to a very different organizational context. It's fair yes. to say, mm-hmm. ECOWAS is intergovernmental, bureaucratized, and the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, where you are now, is obviously very different. It's much smaller, very flexible targeted yes. operating model. Would it be too simplistic to say that you, by design, jumped from one to the other for something where you would have more autonomy, which would be more responsive? Interesting question. Let me start by saying that, I mean, either with ECOWAS or with HD, it's been dealing also with the same political mm. actors. It's been dealing with uh, states. Yep. It's been dealing with armed groups. It's been dealing with uh, politicians, political actors, stakeholders, civil society, um, etc. But maybe through different intervention points, with ECOWAS, you had uh, instant legitimacy. With ECOWAS, perhaps you had unfettered access to key political actors. And this is my experience. But with HD, you didn't have instant uh, acceptance uh, or legitimacy. In fact, in some... Quite the opposite, I would think. <laughs> exactly. People would even ask you, HD, what, what's HD? You know, yeah. um, who is HD? And you would have to explain. And Of course, HD is, is, is quite known in the mediation, mediation diplomacy world, but yeah. For some actors on the ground, you would have to convince them to accept mm. that you want to help them, which wasn't you know, exactly the case with ECOWAS. But I am very, I'm delighted that I made the change, the switch, because uh, there were limitations in, in the work that we did with ECOWAS, even during the golden years that I described. You typically would have to carry out the mandate of the heads of states, 
or the president mm -hmm. of ECOWAS. Of course, there was a little bit of flexibility on how you would interpret that and do it. But with HD, you can be very flexible. You can be nimble on your feet. Mm -hmm. There are no strings attached. You know, you don't have uh, a superpower or a country trying to influence your moves, your efforts. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to deal with some of these powers now and then, especially depending on, you know, the, the magnitude of the conflicts that you're trying to, re to resolve. But by and large, it's a switch from one end to the other, and it's been enjoyable for me, particularly as uh, I felt also that I needed to test out certain things. Walk me through a little bit what that looks like. Um, is there an example that sort of illustrates the approach that you've dealt with over the last five years now? You know, without getting into anything hugely sensitive, obviously, but where are you going? Who are you talking to? Yes. And what kinds of issues? So, in the course of my work with HD, it's my fourth year with HD, mm -hmm. as you know. Until recently, I was a senior program manager um, covering Nigeria and uh, other Anglophone West African countries. So, you did end up working on Nigeria. I did eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Despite, you know, running from my home country, <laughs> I ended up, in fact, my, my main country of focus was Nigeria for three years. Yeah three and a half years, and I tried to avoid it, but it, it happened. And I'm also grateful that it did because it made me to get to know my country more, have a better understanding of uh, the people who travel more widely, helping to resolve major conflicts, intercommunal violence, interreligious problems, pastoralism, you know, farmer had a conflict, chieftaincy disputes, also helping to to recalibrate, you know, for the Northeast, the insurgency-ravaged Northeast uh, geopolitical zone of Nigeria. So with HD, I was able to draft my own mandate, so to speak. I was able to reach out to people. Of course, I had supervision. I still have the executive director to work with. But there was a lot of flexibility in my ability to reach out to people, political stakeholders, to sell the ideas that we had. Um, whereas, quite the opposite with Recoas, where you would have to obtain a mandate before going anywhere. I remember in the, around 2007, 2008, when the militancy in the Niger Delta uh, of Nigeria, Niger Delta region of Nigeria, was at its peak. As influential as Ecowas was, we couldn't crack it because Nigeria simply told Ecowas, it's none of your business. But there is no such thing with uh, HD. Of course, sometimes we get uh, states to tell us, no, we're not open to dealing with this, but at least we try. We're able to try and influence them. Mm. If we try with governments and uh, we fail with the governments, we can reach out to other you know, important groups women, youth, groups, political parties. Another example is uh, the Gambia. When the former president was removed from office through the ballot and there was this coalition government in place, January, February 2018, I think, 
And we went in there. We introduced ourselves, explained who we were, our track record. And we were able to help them because, like I said, there was a coalition in place. But for them, the main objective was to remove Yaya Jami, and he was removed from office. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, chaos, because this were politicians. Exactly. That was the only point of convergence, one. And there was no post-Yaya Jame vision for the country. Yeah. You know? And that became a problem because it was even hard to convene meetings of the cabinet. So we went into the Gambia and we introduced ourselves, appointed a facilitator, the former Nigerian ambassador to France, who was our, who was the HD facilitator. He was, he had also been an African Union special envoy. So we went there, we introduced ourselves, explained what we wanted to, how we wanted to help them, and we were accepted. Mm. We were accepted by government. And at the same time, ECOWAS would not dabble into the Gambia, partly because it felt that Yaya Jami had been removed, good riddance, and therefore things would, you know, flow. It would be hunky-dory afterwards, but it wasn't the case. Mm. So... It's still not the case now. I think there's still some. Uh, it's still some violence and trouble. But it's not of such magnitude that you would have an ECOWAS going there to intervene. Yeah. If you recall, they had actually deployed troops thinking that Yaya Jami would. Across the border, yeah. Yeah, yeah. would remain. Yeah. And there were even jets flying over the presidential mansion to sort of warn him off. But immediately he left automatically. ECOWAS and uh, some international actors felt that was the end of the problem. But the Gambia needed to be assisted to evolve, uh, starting with the government. You know, and we did that. We worked with the political parties because the political party umbrella association, uh, the inter-party committee, as it's known, was the only veritable platform for national dialogue. That was the only place where you had people of different ethnicities, political orientations coming to talk. And we felt that was a platform that we could use to foster a culture of dialogue, to discuss some of the key problems that they needed to discuss and deal with. And I think it helped that we were HD and not ECOWAS at that point because we were able to do it with no strings attached. Yeah, and there's an obvious difference in process, but there's also a difference in Sort of sphere of action, right? I mean, ECOWAS views certain things as being within the internal affairs of countries and not sort of cause to to get involved. But in reality, political stability and, and mitigating violence is a lot more complicated than that. There are plenty of situations within relatively well-functioning national governments that are still very violent and very problematic. And Nigeria yeah. is, unfortunately has what, three or four Separate examples of that, arguably. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you convince? I think you correctly identified earlier that the crux of this is obviously having something to contribute. But then, with that, convincing the parties to a very polarized situation that you are a credible actor and that you can yeah. help them. What does that look like? And how would you have that conversation in practice? I think for most of the conflict parties, whether you're talking about political parties, 
or governments or insurgent groups, I think they're rational. Mm. If you go with your own conflict analysis, which is uh, objective, mm-hmm. even if sometimes it's not palatable to one party or the other, if they see your you're coming with good intentions, that's your objective in the way you analyze and uh, also quite objective in your uh, vision of helping them to resolve their problems. More often than not, they want to talk. Mm. And you also typically would create a platform for them to reach out to the other group. Most of the time, the posture, they tell you they don't want to talk to the other party. Government tells you we don't want to talk to that armed group. They label them whatever it is, terrorists, whatever. Uh, armed groups also say, no, we don't recognize the legitimacy, legitimacy of the state. But more often than not, deep down, they want to talk because they realize at some point that violence would not take them very far. So if you can be creative, uh, if you can use your analysis, your track record, your skills to convince them, and also in some instances, your political connections. I must say that it helps to know a number of key influencers, a number of key influencers, either within those you know countries that you're helping with or outside. I mean, as part of our analysis, you sort of try to look at who can influence certain actors. If you're dealing with the government in the Gambia, for example, you want to think about who are the heirs of the president. Mm-hmm. who can call the president and say, look, you must listen, and this is the way you should go. And the president would consider. Sometimes you need informal mediators in addition to your own key mediator or facilitator. It doesn't always work, by the way, but it does work most of the time. Right? <laughs> to, be, to be clear, I'm sure it doesn't. It doesn't work. Even the UN can't you know, uh, claim... 100% credit. Uh, the UN, right. can't, UN can't claim uh, <laughs> a 20% success rate in my experience, uh-huh. my personal experience. But uh-huh. that's so, another, so, uh, story. so, but at least we come with good intentions, with yeah. excellent analysis, with uh, options, you know, for resolving the, yeah. and we help them to understand, we help them to unpack, you know, uh, these issues and help them to arrive at their own preferred mutual uh, understanding of the conflict as well as the solution. And then the influencers, like I said. Sometimes I've had to resort to my uh, former colleagues, uh, people that I had met in the course of my stint at ECOWAS to help to crack a number of, uh, of yeah. uh, conflict uh, issues, and it's been useful. You have anticipated my, my follow-up question now, which is whether it helps or hinders being Nigerian, working primarily in Nigeria at that time, Gambia as well, of course. Obviously, on the one hand, good level of contextual knowledge, established relationships. On the other hand, perhaps you're positioned in a certain way. I mean, you're from the southwest, so maybe not so much an issue if you're working in the middle belt or the northeast, but then again, maybe it is. I don't know. It does, because because it's also partly... I mean, now you you take me back to my uh, years of scholarship as as a research student. Positionality, your positionality, you have to be aware, self aware of who you are, of course, and how that would either 
help your course or hinder it. And we do that, you know, we do that self-introspection all the time. I do that personally. More often than not, it's helped, you know, to have been uh, ex, to be ex ecoas uh, to have worked on certain types of conflicts. Most of the time, you would even have, you would, especially on high-level international uh, conflicts, you would have met some of the key actors, you know. So it's not the first time they are knowing you or getting to meet you. So that that has been an an asset rather than than a liability, really. It helps to also have you know that good, well-rounded understanding of the various tracks of mediation, whether it's high-level international mediation or community level. You are able to apply certain principles and skills across the board, and that has been useful. And now that I have a bigger mandate, you know, um, as regional director for HD for Anglophone and Lusophone Africa, the set of skills, the set of networks I have been able to bring on board for the new mandate, mm. for the new task, still remains useful. It's, it's interesting that you've been very focused on West Africa and arguably on a particular sub-region of West Africa mm-hmm. up until now. And then Anglophone and Westphone Africa is obviously a, a bigger category. Yes. Is that, is that hard? Does it, does that shake a little bit your sort of intuitive grasp of the, the situation, the relationships that you have? Not really. For me, I think it's been interesting to work on more countries. Mm. Um, having worked in, in West Africa and having to do more work in other parts of the continent, I think that has been a good background. Yeah. Of course, the contexts are different. The people are different. The issues are different. But there are general principles that can, that can be applied. Um, it also helps to have a scholarly background. Um, so it's easy to read and uh, understand. Uh, it also helps to have been a political affairs officer so that your analysis, you know, you can adapt as you proceed. Um, so now I'm working on more cases, uh, uh, working on Ethiopia, working on Mozambique, working on um, Zimbabwe, Somalia, Sudan. And then back again, Liberia is back on the agenda for, for HD Africa. So it's been, it's been interesting. Also, it helps to be, to have some humility because you have to learn new contexts. You have to learn new about new dynamics. When I started to study about the Horn of Africa, for example, started to read and speak to people about the Horn of Africa with, with a view to having a better grasp of the, of the peculiarities. It's so different from West Africa. <laughs> I was going to say. It's so it's, different, you know? It's, it's massively different, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's different. The actors are different. The grievances are different. There are similarities, of course, but it's just different. And it's important to be hum- humble enough to know that you need to learn, you mm-hmm. need to understand and I'm still learning. It's still a work in progress. I wouldn't, by any stretch, call myself an Africa expert. In fact, I don't know what that means when people say they're Africa experts. 
That's generally a pretty big red flag. If yeah, but I've heard it before. I've someone heard describes themselves <laughs> that way. Yes, self-styled uh, exactly. Africa experts. I find that a bit arrogant, you know, yeah. uh, because number one, Africa is so broad. We're talking about 54 countries with uh, so many problems within each country, so many things to, to deal with. So it's hard to, to call oneself you know, an expert, even for West Africa that I have worked on for over a decade, I wouldn't say I'm a West Africa expert. I would say I'm a keen student of West Africa, of political, sociopolitical events, uh, issues in West Africa. So it's been, it's been interesting. It's been stimulating. I've learned. I'm still learning a lot. I, but I, I'm happy that I'm able to, you know, expand my horizon, the scope my, of my understanding for for the continent. Would you would you go broader still? I mean, some some people self style as conflict experts who can work anywhere in the world, right? Beyond the continent, hmm. <laughs> not at the same time that I'm working on the continent. <laughs> there are too many problems to grapple with. <laughs> There are too many things to try and understand. The nuances, the worldviews. I would rather, for now, you know, limit myself to the continent. There is still a lot to do. There is still a lot to know. I think I detect a little bit of, of Pan-Africanism in there as well. Is that, yes. is that fair? Yes, it's fair to say that. Yeah, I don't, I don't put time. it on my forehead, but I very much uh, subscribe to the ideals, most of the ideals uh, espoused in Pan-Africanism. I think Africa's uh, problems will be ultimately resolved by Africans in Africa. I think for now, it's more of a marketplace situation where people are coming to. I mean, people come with good intentions. Some come with good intentions, but by and large, it is just based on interests, especially for the outsiders, for most of them. But ultimately, Africa needs to resolve Africa's problems. Without subscribing to that well-worn cliche of mm. African solutions to African problems. Mm. Of course, we could do with help from outside. Mm. And I think we would always need help. Even, I mean, outside of Africa, the West uh, seeks help from others. But the solution lies on the continent, lies with African people, lies with a conscious decision to find what is workable for them as a people with a distinct identity. And I ask mainly because you seemed you seem a little bit sad to have left a sort of African led institution that, you know, maybe wasn't as vigorous as you would like it to be that there was a potential that was not realized there. Well, I went to, I returned, the second stint, again, back to ECOWAS, I returned with a, a mindset to help to change things, and that didn't quite work out the <laughs> way uh, I wanted. Um, but of course, to be honest, there is a sense of frustration that you see an institution that had achieved so much in the past not pulling its weight, mm. not working in full capacity. And this is not even restricted to ECOWAS, by the way. We've been talking about ECOWAS for a long time. Um, let's go to the African Union. African Union 
is also, in my view, not at full capacity. Mm. And uh, if the entity that is responsible for dealing with these issues for the entire continent is not at full capacity, then it's not a good thing for the continent. You've described quite a natural synergy, I guess, or complementarity between the the two ways you've been engaged with with conflict and security issues, I think. Sort of one top-down is not necessarily the right word, but the sort of intergovernmental and the non-governmental perspectives, the way you've explained it, do seem to complement each other in, in some respects, no? Yeah. Maybe you didn't plan it that way, but... I didn't plan it that way at the beginning, <laughs> yeah. because I remember that starting out... I started with a national NGO, although with a regional outlook, CDD, mm-hmm. and then um, went to an intergovernmental uh, organization with a sub-regional mandate, and then ended up with a private diplomacy foundation. It's been very rich, you know, gaining experience from those different layers, also with the academic, uh, somewhat academic background. It's been a good blend, I think. I think I've been fortunate to have had that blend. And although I would say uh, that I'm much more of a practitioner now than an academic. I try to remember to wear my academic hat now and then by writing. <laughs> to me, that's a good thing not to <laughs> display my biases too openly. <laughs> I try to, you know, but when you're engrossed with helping to resolve some of the most protracted conflicts in the world, you really find little time to attend academic conferences. Sometimes you're frustrated with literature, especially mm-hmm. academic literature on your field, because you read certain things and you're wondering where they got the ideas from or the mm-hmm. facts. Mm. What is presented as fact, you wonder where they got it from because it's not the truth. Or it's an incredibly sort of superficial yes. version of the truth. Yes, sometimes uh, unduly critical without taking into cognizance the realities, mm. uh, the difficulties. It's very easy to postulate sometimes and not understand the nuances and the complexities of the issues. Sometimes mm. scholars... A number of scholars are very simplistic in their arguments, one-track, you know, minded, which is a bit, bit of a surprise for academics. I would assume that an academic, you know, would uh, try and, you know, lay out all the complexities, put it out there, mm. and then try to make sense of it. But it's not always the case. It's not always the case. And for someone who is uh, very much in tune with, uh, the field with practice, it's it can be a bit uh, irritating. All due respect to scholars doing very fantastic work across the world. The other question I ask everybody, and I deliberately didn't tell you this in advance because I like to get an off-the-cuff <laughs> response, is a book or piece of writing that's been particularly influential for you that's a very interesting question. I don't have a favorite book in that sense of it. Um, but I have different publications mm-hmm. 
on different issues that I go to from time to time. So, for example, if I'm thinking about Nigeria and the way the socio-political environment is evolving or has evolved over time, I always go back to a seminal piece by written, actually, I think, way before I was born, The Two Publics mm-hmm. by uh, Peter Eke, mm-hmm. Professor Peter Eke, you know, where he describes the post-colonial political environment of Nigeria and how there are two publics, you know, the private realm and the public realm. It's, it's for me, so seminal that it explains even today. Mm. It explains what is happening in 2020, even though it was written in the 70s. So that is one of, you know, the best written pieces that I have come across on Nigeria. And it applies also to other post-colonial, post-independence states of Africa. And I thank my professors in Ibadan, you know, to have exposed me to such a seminal, seminal work. Another book that has been of influence, perhaps anything written by Franz Fanon as well. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the most powerful oh, yes. writing ever put on paper. So. Exactly. Also very seminal. It's, it's a book that I also have read over and over again. listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm.